Professor Robert McClemon, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. This sounds like a rather alarming report, is it? Uh, I, I don't know if alarming is the right word, but certainly we should be very, very concerned about what it suggests, uh, because the report suggests that we are going to be living in a planet by the end of this century that's more than three degrees warmer than it was uh, pre-industrial periods, uh, and that's the kind of planet where you won't want to raise your children. Well, explain what you mean by that. Well, it's a kind of planet where three degrees warming leads to sea level rise that will displace hundreds of millions of people. On the North American Great Plains, droughts become 200 to 300 percent more common. Uh, flood return rates increase by 75 to 100 percent, uh, where food systems start to uh, groan under the weight of trying to produce enough food with uh, water and extreme heat being uh, challenges for farmers. So there's a lot of impacts that uh, will be very disruptive and where we will have passed a, a tipping point where it's difficult to get back to the system that we used to have. But I thought we were aiming for a maximum of like 1.5 degrees, and now they're talking about 3.2. What's going on? Well, essentially, it's the lack of what's going on that's the problem, is that nobody's doing uh, what needs to be done to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the planet has already warmed by approximately 1 degree Celsius over pre-industrial levels. So what we need to do, essentially, is we need to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half uh, within the next decade or so, and then push them down to near zero by mid-century if we want to keep the planet's warming to no more than one and a half or two degrees Celsius. But because countries have done very little in terms of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, in fact, they continue to grow in most countries, we are locking ourselves into three degrees or warmer uh, by the end of the century. Is there a, a danger in uh, continued reports like this saying we're headed for, uh, and I'll use the word disaster, um, if we don't act? And people, because climate change is slow and gradual, people don't see it right away. And so they're saying, yeah, yeah, it's another alarming report and just sort of push it to the back of their minds kind of thing. I guess from my perspective, I would rather read uh, alarming reports about what might happen than to read reports that look at disasters that have already happened. Uh, for example, um, tropical storms of Category 5 nature, like the one that blew through the Bahamas this past fall, those become the new norm in a three-degree warmer world. Uh, I would rather uh, be in our situation where we're reading the warnings and we're given time to act than people in the Bahamas, who you do not need to explain to them the risks of climate change and that action needs to be taken. Uh, and that's, that's very common, we find, is that uh, in research, is that people who have lived through natural disasters are much more ready to recognize that climate change is uh, you know, a real risk that we need to do something about. So you're correct in the sense that you know, people may say, oh, not another climate change report. But the reality is that things are not improving, and we do need these reminders that action is needed. And if people get tired of um, hearing them, then perhaps the, the best way to deal with it is to, to take action. What, what do you say to people, though, who will look at the statistics and say, yeah, but the, the world's shipping fleet, for example, emits more pollution than all of Canada or other things that say, you know, why have a carbon tax when if people just inflated their car tires properly and changed the air filters much more often, then we'd have no problem at all? Well, I mean, there's lots of ways that you can look at this and say, well, if somebody else did something differently, you know, or why doesn't China cut its emissions? That's more important than Canada's and things like that. We can keep you know, splitting up the problem until nobody's responsible and then everybody suffers. Uh, and that's not the language of leaders, is it? I think the, the way we need to look at it is that there's all kinds of low-hanging fruit out there 
that we have opportunities to uh, reduce our personal and community-level greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, there's lots of opportunities. I'm much more optimistic-looking than that. Now, the idea of a carbon tax uh, is getting a lot of resistance in Canada, and right now it's extremely low. And there was a report out just uh, today saying for a carbon tax to be effective, it's got to be up to like $210 per tonne. That would have massive effects on the economy, and people would wouldn't people really resist that if they're already resisting a $15 per tonne carbon tax here in Canada? Well, there's certainly a lot of political rhetoric around this, and a lot of it seems to come from politicians who get their money from oil companies. Uh, but if you look at the results of the last federal election in Canada, you'll see that the majority of Canadians actually voted for parties that are in favor of strong action on climate change and that support a climate tax. That vote just happened to be split across multiple parties. So there's far more voted in favor of that sort of policy than people who voted against it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that it is a complete myth that carbon taxes have economic, dire economic consequences. Sweden has had a, a carbon tax in place for a couple decades now, and their economic growth has been very strong. And in fact, on a per capita basis, their gross domestic product and uh, wealth is greater than Canada's. So uh, there's just literally no science to support that sort of uh, assertion. I think one of the things that you also see is that you're right, if the carbon tax is so low that it has no meaningful effect, people do see it as uh, a bit of a tax grab and say, well, what's the point of implementing this if it's not really going to make much of a difference? And I think that's really what people are looking for, is to see carbon-reducing uh, policies and climate policies more generally that, that, that achieve something. I think that's what people are looking for. On an individual basis, then, what can people do or what should they be doing, perhaps? Well, I mentioned there's all kinds of low-hanging fruit, and, and just a few examples, you know, homeowners can switch from the old incandescent light bulbs to LED light bulbs, they can put more insulation in their attics, they can get a new updated high-efficiency furnace. Uh, there's all kinds of little things that can be done around the house that both reduce energy consumption and save money as well. Uh, for people who uh, commute by automobile, uh, if even just one day a week, even if it's a little bit inconvenient, if you took the bus or the train instead of your car, uh, that one day a week uh, switch to public transportation would reduce your personal greenhouse gas emissions from transportation by 20%. So that's a significant reduction. Um, you know, families that eat meat every day, uh, meat has a much higher carbon footprint than vegetables and, and, and grain crops. So one day a week switch, from, you know, switch to uh, spaghetti with tomato sauce and no beef in it or, uh, you know, vegetarian curry or a stir-fry with no meat, and instantly you reduce your household contributions to greenhouse gas emissions through the food system by more than 10%. So lots of little things that could be done. You even mentioned yourself and things like, you know, better maintenance of your car or, uh, you know, your next car should be a hybrid or an electric one. There's lots of things we can do at an individual level, and that has an effect uh, in terms of the economy because it shows that there's a demand for low-carbon emission uh, products. Robert McClemon, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me.